Many Christians in our world don't believe that a woman should be a priest or a pastor. This year, 2021, in January, Pope Francis changed the laws of the Roman Catholic Church to formally allow women to give readings from the Bible during Mass, act as altar servers, and distribute communion, but they remain barred from becoming deacons or priests. As of 2018, there were 47,456 churches that were Southern Baptists spread across 41 state conventions, according to the denomination. And while all members of these churches don't necessarily believe women can't be pastors, it is a basic tenet of the Southern Baptist faith, especially with specific articles uh, limiting the roles of women that were passed in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. One of these passed in 1998 when the Southern Baptist Convention, the nation's largest Protestant denomination, amended its essential statement of beliefs to include a declaration that a woman should submit herself to graciously to her husband's leadership and that a husband should provide for, protect, and lead his family. They amended their basic beliefs, their core values to include this. Out of all of the things that the Bible preaches, this was important enough to make an essential belief. It's not just a Southern Baptist or a Catholic problem. One of my responsibilities in my last position that you may or may not be aware of was that I worked with seminaries around the country where ministers trained, and I worked with churches who were in the search process of finding a pastor. There are so, so many gifted and called women who feel led to be serving as a pastor of a church. And over and over again, though, I heard from churches we don't have anything against women ministers. We support them. We think it's fine. We're just not ready for one. Even churches that are ready to have a woman pastor often talk about female candidates in the search process, saying they don't feel pastoral enough because they don't fit. What we've come to understand of as pastoral, something that's steeped in maleness, the problem isn't just in the church. One of my favorite books that I would recommend every woman read is a corporate book called Her Place at the Table, A Woman's Guide to Negotiating Five Key Challenges to Leadership Success. Uh, it's by Deborah Cobe. And it starts by saying leadership roles in major institutions still elude women. According to Catalyst, women hold less than 3% of the chief executive jobs in the Fortune 500. And that's the highest number ever. And less than 16% of corporate officer jobs, a number that has remained static since 2002. Our world has a female problem. It's not the church. It's not just the corporate world. It's not just the United States. We, before last, we saw militants in Afghanistan set off a car bomb and at least two other blasts as young girls poured out of a school at the end of the day. The death toll was around, four, uh, around 85, excuse me. This was done primarily because the militant group that's suspected for doing this um, 
doesn't believe that women and girls should be educated. In her book, Half the Church, Recapturing God's Global Vision for Women, Carolyn Custis James says, it appears that more girls have been killed in the last 50 years precisely because they were girls than men were killed in all the wars of the 20th century. More girls are killed in this routine gender side in any one decade than people were slaughtered in all the genocides of the 20th century. Research indicates that worldwide around 3 million women and girls have been kidnapped or sold, sometimes by their own families, into the sex trade. What we say about women matters, and it matters, and it mattered to God. What does scripture really say about women? If you're like me, you grew up hearing very specific scriptures that limited the roles of women in our world in leadership. Are they made lesser than men? Are they to remain silent in the church? And what, what about that whole issue of submission? You can find scripture to use to, to say that women shouldn't be pastors. There, there are verses that, that if you pull them out, that's exactly what it looks like. You can also find scripture that answer any of those questions about submission and silence with a yes. But you can also find scripture to use that says you shouldn't eat pork or shrimp or wear clothing of mixed fabrics, that you should go and confess any sin you've you've committed against another person before you take communion, that you're allowed to own other people in slavery, that you're allowed to take multiple wives, and the list goes on. Some point to the creation story to prove that women are not to be leaders. In my church, we've talked about the two creation stories before, but but in the first creation story, Adam and Eve are made at the same moment. And it says in Genesis 1:27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Both made in God's image. In the second story of creation uh, in Genesis, Adam is alone and lonely. And so God creates Eve and says that she will be his Isaiah. Isaiah is a word that we have often translated just as helper or helpmate. And that is true, but it's not like a second in command, assistant kind of support. The word Isaiah is not translated anywhere else to show subordination. And out of the 20 times it appears in the Old Testament, 17 of them refer to God as being a helper to man. There are three times in the New Testament where women are told to submit to their husbands in what are called household codes. These household codes were very similar to household codes that the readers of these New Testament letters would have heard before um, that were written in Stoic, Jewish, and Hellenistic traditions that influenced these early Christians. Scholars have shown that these codes would have influenced the early Christians, but 
the differences in what appears in our scripture in the Bible may surprise you. And that's, that's where we learn more about their intent and in being included. The pattern in each of these uh, household codes is that one ranks uh, higher uh, than the other one, or there is a power dynamic. Uh, and the, the counterpart submits to the one that has the more power. This would have been the pattern that everyone around them was following. The writers are just repeating what they already are know, already know and trying to find peace. But then they take it up a notch for Christians. This is not just how you fit in, but how you stand out. And the way you stand out is by adding love to the equation. The part that we like to preach as gospel sometimes in the church, the part about wives submitting to their husbands would have been just repetition. The shocking part, the part that was new for them was the call for husbands to love their wives. Husbands didn't have to love their wives, didn't have to respect their wives as a part of that culture. They didn't have to care for them or protect them. The purpose of these, the inclusion of these is to, to draw it back to love and care. One time that these codes appear, it actually explicitly says that husband and wife are to submit to one another. Another includes slaves in the list of those who are to be obedient. But those nuances have gotten lost along the way as we pluck certain words that were put in in order to keep women in their place. And in more recent decades, to push back against the movement of women leaving the home to work. Large swaths of Christianity have taken these passages and made them the heart of their doctrine. Three passages of scripture sum up to them how women and men should be in relationship with one another. Three passages that are never actually read in their entirety, in their content, or in their original spirit. In fact, they're read, I believe, in the opposite spirit in which they were written. Along with these three household codes, there are another two scriptures that are used to limit the leadership of women in the church. One is from 1 Corinthians, in which Paul primarily focuses on order throughout the whole text. 1 Corinthians 14, 36 and 37 says, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must learn in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. After this, Paul has said that he is concerned that everything be done decently and in order. Paul has already admonished specific women for being disruptive in worship and in early verses, and here he is addressing three different groups, those who speak in tongues, prophets, and women. The guidelines for all three include a time to be silent. It would have been the custom for questions to be asked of the teacher in worship, unless you were uneducated. One interpretation is that the women, even those raised in the synagogues, would have been insufficiently educated. 
another interpretation is that ancient Mediterranean culture, in, in that culture, it would have been improper for a woman to address a man, for an honorable woman to address a man, opening herself up for uh, gossipers to complain about her morality. The shocking piece is that Paul tells the women to learn at home from their husbands. Women weren't encouraged to learn. And actually, just a few verses ahead of this, or a few chapters ahead of this particular passage, Paul is actually giving guidance for women who prophesy in worship. The women are speaking in worship, and he is giving them guidance for how to do it in an orderly way. Craig Keener, a scholar, has said that if we take these words literally, women wouldn't be able to sing in worship. They wouldn't be able to offer prayers or the children's sermon or, or to do any other speaking in worship. And if we're going to take this scripture literally throughout all future generations, why not also provide offerings for Jerusalem every Sunday as it calls for in chapter 16 or, or require head coverings and offer each other in holy kisses like it does in chapters 11 and 16. The other passage that's used to silence women in ministry leadership is 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, where it goes back to the, to the fall of creation to say that because Eve was deceived, women can't have authority over a man and, and will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. The overall message of Timothy is concerned with false teachings. This letter contradicts itself and, and other letters that are known to be from Paul more than once. Paul lauds singleness elsewhere, but here says that women will be saved through childbirth. Widows are scolded and praised in different parts of the letter. This letter is about the church in Ephesus that would have been, uh, which, which would have also held the largest temple in Asia Minor which was dedicated to the worship of Artemis, the god of fertility. The temple there would have had hundreds of sacred priestesses who, according to custom, also served as prostitutes. Some of these women may have been early converts in the church. And even if not, Paul is very concerned with the example of the early church in the midst of this particular culture. There are other instructions in this letter, ones that are never usually preached about or followed, um, that tell women not to cut their hair, wear jewelry, um, and about specific clothing that they should and shouldn't wear. And it reveals that these women were coming to the church, but had the appearance associated with those who worshipped and worked in the temple. These were commands in order to, to set the small Christian church apart from its culture. The original Greek that says, I permit no woman to teach is a specific type of phrase. I'm going to get a little technical here, uh, but it's important. Uh, a present active indicative that applies to a specific situation. Nowhere else in scripture uh, where this type of verb appears is it translated as a perpetual command. And the statement, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man is more accurately translated as, I do not permit a woman to dominate a man. 
The original word has a malevolent connotation. It wasn't until the third or fourth century that church leaders interpreted it to mean a woman was prohibited from teaching men. It was understood in the earliest translations to mean that women weren't to have a spirit of domination over men that would have been normal in the Artemis temple worship. Catherine Booth, the co-founder of the Salvation Army, was said to have thought it backwards, and I would agree with her, to use two passages, or, or if you include the household codes, five passages as the key to understanding all other scripture. I have four pages of my thesis just to give the highlights, just the highlights for examples of women leading in scripture. Even in a patriarchal society where it would have been very uncommon God allows Hagar, a slave woman, to name God. Miriam leads the Israelites out of Egypt with her brothers playing a tambourine. Deborah was a prophet and a judge. Esther saved her people from annihilation. God chose Mary, a teenage girl, to bring Jesus into the world. Women were the first to see the empty tomb and, and to preach the good news that Jesus was risen. In the New Testament letters, Women are listed in leadership in every city listed in Acts. The history of the totality of the gospel shows that God values women, uses women in leadership and in the movement of the kingdom of God. It is crazy to take literally a handful of verses and use them as the filter for all of the other texts. I believe Paul would probably say to us, how in the world did you get that? Women shouldn't be leaders in the church forever from those statements. He doesn't give pro-women statements because it's natural to him to praise women in leadership, to call them out, to send them to other churches as leaders and representatives of him and of the Christian movement. It would have been so natural, it did not need to be said. Scott McKnight, author of The Blue Parakeet, writes, what we most need is not a return to the first or fourth or 16th or 18th century, but a fresh blowing of God's spirit on our culture, in our day, in our ways. We need 21st century Christians living out the biblical gospel in 21st century ways. Even more, if we read the Bible properly, we see that God never asked one generation to step back in time and live the way it had done before. No, God spoke in each generation in that generation's ways. McKnight also says that individual scriptures were never intended to be plucked out and lobbed back and forth as grenades to argue a specific point. And I don't want to do that this morning. But this matters because Audra, as Audra and Joe Troll say in their book, Putting Women in Their Place, from the earliest chapters of Genesis, the devaluation of females has been a constant story in human history. Patriarchy, male domination, discrimination, and sexism have characterized almost every civilization. But in the garden, God created male and female in God's image. In the life and death and resurrection of Christ, an opportunity and a challenge to live with that kind of freedom, responsibility, and possibility was put before us again. 
here's a few guiding principles when you're when you're looking for what's right and true when you're looking for a ministry to be involved in a new church to join if they pull out a few verses out of context and make sweeping statements about half the world's population it's about power and control don't believe it is truth when they convincingly lob a handful of verses at you as declarative about anything just because it's something that we've come to believe or has been preached over time doesn't mean it's right. The Bible is a radical account of a God that is calling the people back in relationship with God. And we've too often used it to limit, to put people in their place, to define who's sinners and who's not. And that is not the message of scripture. I could say so much more about the history of the early church and how women have been involved in preaching and, and were persecuted. The incredible and creative ways that women have found to be involved in church leadership throughout the years. And I could even argue some more scripture and translation with you, but, but I won't do that. As it says in Galatians 3.28, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. I won't go on arguing a point because what we learn from the early church is that we have to grow more and more to see other people in the image of God. We have to see past our limited definitions of gender. It is harmful for both men and women, when we do not honor them both as people made in the image of God, when we do not allow and encourage them to grow into the people that God has created them to be, the world is lesser for it. And it matters because it defines what we say about God. When we keep putting God and God's people inside of a box so that we can understand it, so that we can feel powerful, we are limiting the work that God is able to do through us. Make no mistake, God will keep moving. We will just be arguing over the same things again and again. And it matters because we know that the persecution of women, discrimination, and misogyny are problems worldwide. Christians should be leading the way in elevating all of God's people, all of God's image bearers. And instead, a couple of weeks ago, in a week when Christians should have been speaking out on social media about the 85 young girls that were killed, there was an argument amongst Southern Baptists, again, about who ought to be a pastor and not, and even throwing in a good argument about yoga pants just for good measure. This matter about gender equality is, is way more important than just whether I ought to be a pastor. And it is way bigger. The world is waiting for a people to lead the way, to speak into this darkness, to make things better for women and men. This could be part of the fresh wind the church needs, liberating men and women to live fully into the image of God. The Spirit of God has poured out on all of us. What will we do with it? May we be a people that are willing to lead in brave and bold new ways. The world is waiting. Amen.